0: Hey there, welcome back to The Last of Us, Surviving the Super Apocalypse by Keith McNally. This is an audio recording of my book about The Last of Us. You can also get the book for free at my website, keithcourage.com, so feel free to go check it out, give it a read, spread it around, tell people, do all the things. And this audio version is available as a podcast, and as a YouTube video series with cool video shit. Alright, when we last left our heroes Tess and Joel, Tess had brutally murdered Robert the Gunrunner, and we never need to worry about Robert ever again. We met Marlene, the leader of the highly improbable group the Fireflies, which despite the enormity of the apocalypse that has gripped the entire earth and the relative smallness and lameness of the fireflies they've somehow carved out this foothold in society for 20 straight years i don't know how because they're fucking ridiculous but we'll get into firefly theory more as we go Marlene has a package that she needs taken out of the city which we of course know is Ellie. We are on our way to meet her. So otherwise, what I'm describing is the plot of The Last of Us which we all know. So Ellie's introduction. I take out these four enemies and we've done it. We got all the way to Ellie with no damage taken to an outside observer this must have looked like the luckiest day of old Joel's battle in life a shit ton of people dead without taking a scratch I used to actually kind of uh, think that way with um, the Uncharted games I thought uh, it was neat to think of them as almost like an experimental film where in a movie everything goes great and of course nothing goes mortally wrong for the hero because then the movie would be over and I thought it was neat how with an uncharted game or with any video game really but because uncharted is so cinematic it felt like a movie where you get to see all the ways that the main character would and probably should have died the hundreds of ways that their extremely improbable quest you know would come to an end but then you get to ultimately see that one method where they managed to thread the needle just perfectly and had the most lucky day in the fucking history of existence and somehow dodged every bullet and made it through every situation and it's just another neat thing video games can do another neat way of telling a story so I thought it was neat with like an uncharted game where even though it's the same old 1940s serial fucking swashbuckling Raiders of the Lost Ark whatever never before have we gotten to see the main character die a hundred (laughs) times you know that would be the weirdest movie of all time but in a video game you get to see both sides of the coin it's just it's cool we meet ellie the stabby suspicious teen marlene arrived on the scene injured did i mention that so since marlene is in no shape to go adventuring she says tess and joel can get the guns that they were trying to get from robert if they deliver Ellie to a drop point. The quest to save the world is motivated by guns. Ironic. Little did they know that Joel himself is the most deadly weapon of all. This is the longest train of all time, but it's, uh, it's going real slow. So let's leave it in add a little texture to this recording little train ambiance oh and now an airplane is going by a seaplane it is not a quiet world my friends this is the quietest spot i could find in the entire greater vancouver area and it's loud as fuck earlier before i started recording there were these birds these seagulls man they were fucking loud they would not fuck off When I first saw Ashley Johnson, the actress who plays Ellie, I recognized her from her appearances in Joss Whedon stuff. He clearly likes her. And if Joss Whedon likes you, then you're okay by me. I'd probably lend you money just based on your association with Joss Whedon. But you... But you never ask. Because you're a class act. Ellie doesn't want to go with this grizzled old weirdo but Marlene says it's okay. Marlene used to know Joel's brother Tommy and Tommy vouched for him. Then Marlene says, no more talking. Maybe Joel's terseness isn't that much of a change to Ellie's routine. I bet she gets tired of hanging out with all these tough ass pricks all the time. So Joel and Ellie head to a safe house while Tess goes to check out the guns. Judging by one of Tess's earlier smuggling manifests, guns aren't usually on the docket. They normally smuggle regular items, like clothes and toilet paper. That could be an extra reason why Tess is so excited by these guns. This could be their move up into the big time, filling the gap vacated by the recently bulleted Robert. Maybe that's why Robert threw his gun. Because he's gun-rich. He doesn't even need to fire them, he just throws gun after gun battering his foes to death under a crushing pile of guns. And soon, Tess and Joel will be the gun throwers. This book is so stupid. Like, I'm I'm very proud of this book, you know? I think it's cool that I finished writing a book. And as I said back in, like, the first episode, I mean, I wrote it kind of deliberately silly. Like, the tone is a little dorky on purpose but man reading it out loud is tough sometimes ellie sees bodies on the ground and asks joel what happened to them joel says the fireflies he doesn't blame the soldiers or the military he places the blame for any deaths squarely on the fireflies it's obvious the more i play that joel has absolutely no positive opinion of the fireflies It could be that he harbors some bitterness about Tommy leaving to join their ranks. But on a larger level, I think he's offended by their idealism. Everyone in this world is fucking with somebody else. But at least it's for practical, self-interested reasons. The Fireflies are fucking with everybody over ideals. They're leading people into violent action in the name of some abstract, ill-defined hope. At the very least, Joel's got to find that pretty fucking annoying. Ellie Tech. When Ellie's standing around, she occasionally wipes her knife on her pant leg. The knife, however, remains bloody. It's probably easier for it to always stay a bit bloody, rather than to swap in a different knife model. Or, the knife is so eternally caked in the blood of military school bitches that it will never be clean again. Punching Ellie has no effect. Can you imagine if it did? Imagine if at any point the story needed to be able to explain away a violent, unmotivated pummeling? The number of problems that would cause boggles the mind. Joel and Tess's safe house. Joel and Ellie arrive at the safe house and Joel takes a little nap to kill time while waiting on Tess. I love this scene of Joel and Ellie at the hideout together. This might be the first time Joel's been left to look after a teenage girl since the death of his daughter, and he tries to play it cool. But inside, I bet his subconscious is already freaking out, trying to strengthen his mental walls in the hopes of keeping this whole situation from attacking his mind. On subsequent playthroughs, there's a weird feeling of doom in the air. I don't think Naughty Dog did anything in particular to cue that feeling, but in the larger context of the story, this quiet time between our two protagonists seems significant, even if Joel sleeps through it. I initially found it weird that Joel lays down with his backpack on. It seemed like something a 1997-era PlayStation character would do, who had no ability to remove a backpack from his character model. But Naughty Dog is obviously not hampered by those kinds of limitations. I decided that Joel must sleep with his pack on so that Ellie won't fuck with his stuff. Given that there's a gun in there, it's probably a good choice. This scrappy kid who wipes a bloody knife on her pant leg definitely seems like a good candidate for stealing some shit. Speaking of backpacks, it's pretty impressive that Naughty Dog managed to make Joel wearing a backpack seem cool. That's not an easy thing to do. The first reference is made to Joel's watch, with Ellie saying, your watch is broken. I like how rarely overt symbolism is used in this game. The watch is the big one, and I didn't really notice it the first time through. Of course, the entire apocalypse could be seen as symbolic of Joel's barren internal landscape. As he is a broken man, so is the very earth broken. The pain in his heart mirrors the pain in the player as a clicker bites them for the 50th fucking time. It's no wonder that in-depth analysis of video games gets so wanky, because it's a very easy thing to slip into. By pressing buttons on the controller, we are literally pressing Joel's buttons. With the crafting system, we're trying to craft into being the lost desires of a haggard soul. By shooting a fucking zombie in its gross zombie face, we're splattering the hopes and dreams of the human race across the pavement of an uncaring cosmos! I'm not saying I won't do some of that shit during the course of this book. I'm just saying that it's not real difficult to do. Self-Tailoring a Story When trying to tell a compelling video game story, I think a lack of player options can be beneficial. The Last of Us is on a single, set path, and I think the overall story benefits greatly from that decision. But in more malleable games, it can be fun to alter a story's course in order to eliminate parts that you don't like. In some games, you can outright murder the characters who annoy you. In Fallout 3, I was so excited to finally meet 3Dog. I could barely wait to explain to him that an over-the-top, cheesy DJ was insulting to the very notion of the apocalypse. But I could tell by the vacant look in his eye that my words were not getting through. I knew that as soon as I left his station, he was going to go right back to his ear-mangling, hackle-raising nonsense. So I pulled out a gun, and I blew up his head. Then as a sign of respect, I did wear Three Dog's headband throughout the rest of my adventures. I smiled every time an awkward intern came on the air to announce that they were having clerical problems because someone had exploded Three Dog's dumb head. I had brought some peace to the wasteland. I had made a difference. Another example is in the first chapter of Telltale's The Walking Dead. You can choose to rescue a woman named Carly or a guy named Doug. Players overwhelmingly chose Carly, but not me. I chose Doug without a moment's hesitation because Carly committed the sin of offending my storytelling sensibilities. Firstly, Carly dropped some pretty heavy hints that she found Doug cute. And that dialogue was about as organic as a Pop-Tart made out of plastic, so Carly was already on my watch list. Later, While trying to hold back a zombie horde in a moment of extreme crisis, Carly sealed her fate. She said, Doug, if we don't make it through this, you should know. Really, lady? You're going to say this now while mind-scrambling amounts of adrenaline are pumping through you? You're going to confess your feelings during the most terrifying moments of your entire life? What is this? A soap opera from Mexican Netflix, where the description says one season, 290 episodes? Is that what this is, Carly? Not on my watch, it's not. I chose Doug, and I never looked back. Editing through murder, one of the great joys of video games. And yet another case of uh, the fact that this book often talks about things that have nothing to do with The Last of Us. It's because I really thought, like, hey, what if I never write another book about video games? i got to get all my thoughts out now. Fucking Walking Dead. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Tess loves guns. Still in the safe house, we jump forward in time to later that night. Ellie is staring out the window, into the rain. She mentions how she's never been this close to being outside the city. I love that moment. I love rain in movies, in video games, in real life. Unless it's in the form of a tsunami, rain is just goddamn pleasant. And even as a tsunami, it'd be a hell of a way to go. Bring it on, God. I'm asking for it. I'm requesting a custom death. I dare you! I'm calling you out! Skies are still clear. I guess I'll just keep writing this book then. You would think I didn't edit this book. I did. I swear to God I did. Joel asks Ellie, What on earth do the Fireflies want with you? Maybe this is the first crack in his fatherly facade. Joel knows that association with the Fireflies means idealism and death. Whatever their plans are for Ellie, there's no way that any of it is actually for her own good. Tess rocks through the door before Ellie can answer and says that she saw the guns. She says there are a lot of them, and I like the way she squares her jaw. Merchandise is what's important to Tess. She's excited as shit to get her hands on those guns and to move up the Boston food chain. In a lot of ways, Tess kind of reminds me of... Uh, the character Zoe from Firefly. Firefly, you know, as, as with many a nerd, it's, it's like my favorite TV show. It was just a real, real good show. Besides that one episode, you know the one. But it has all these uh, extremely rich characters and part of what makes that show so enduring is the fact that it got immediately canceled. So it's like all these little presents that you never get a chance to open. And on the surface, the uh, most simplistic or the most shallow character seems to be Zoe. She's just a tough military woman. But it's been interesting as like the years go by that uh, it's like I just feel like I'm slowly learning more about the value of Zoe as a character. And the more I learn about particularly military type stuff and uh, the benefits of leadership and of uh, a strict lifestyle and all that stuff. I'm like, guys, Zoe's actually really interesting. Like, I think there was a lot of ground that could be covered with her, a lot more than seemed initially. Tess is a bit like that as well. Tess as a person isn't like Zoe, but as a character sort of feels that way to me. Fits in that same kind of paradigm of like seemingly simple but there's a lot more depths to plumb than it might initially seem. Mm-hmm. I don't think Joel is quite that invested in the smuggler's life. It seems more like smuggling is just a way to keep him busy and to help keep his mind off the crushing awfulness of the post-apocalypse world. Tess is younger than Joel. Maybe she was in her early teens when the apocalypse happened? that might make it easier for her to adapt than it is for Joel. For her, maybe the change was interpreted less as a loss and more like the most cataclysmic version of puberty imaginable. It wouldn't have been a treat, but maybe that timing helped Tess to internalize and accept the changes in the world. Whereas Joel was already a grown man when things fell apart. Even without the trauma of losing his daughter, Maybe that adult awareness of everything that had been lost became totally irreconcilable in his mind. I don't know. It's just a theory. I told you I was going to put some wanky bullshit in here from time to time. Into the Rain Marlene told Tess that a firefly contingent had traveled all the way from another city to pick up Ellie. That clears up a bit of the nebulousness surrounding the fireflies, When people refer to Marlene as the leader, they're only talking about Boston, which is not where Central Command is located. It's now Tess and Joel's job to deliver Ellie to these out-of-towners. So let's roll! Oh man, I'm a little worried because the tide is extremely high today. And there's been a shitload of rain lately. And the only piece of beach I could find is this little tiny piece of beach and a big boat just went by and I'm afraid that these waves are going to fuck my shit up (laughs) because I can't get away from them. There's a steep cliff behind me covered in brambly branches. Oh, maybe I'm okay. Maybe those waves weren't so bad. Oh no. I think I see the waves rolling in. Get my little recorder going just in case. Uh uh. Oh no. Oh, here they come. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh. Oh. Oh shit. Fuck. Ah, ah shit. Fuck. Oh no. Oh. Oh, that wasn't so bad. The last one was worse. Oh, my feet are so wet. This is so dumb. Why would I record a book like this? Why would I do this? This is so dumb. Ugh. I'm going to have to go to the dollar store after this and just <laughs> buy a new pair of socks. This is the fucking dumbest. No! No! No waves, no! No, no! Oh, uh, uh, Oh, fuck. Come on, man. Uh. Okay, alright. Waves have passed, I survived. Exiting the hideout, you can find an invoice that Tess compiled of Bill's latest supply delivery. The invoice includes some side notes about the merchandise that she left for Joel. And it's a lot more playful than I would have expected. I guess when Tess has a new shipment of stuff, it puts her in a good mood. Those guns are going to make her ecstatic. Except that she's going to die before she sees them. Well, darn it. Oh, now it's fucking raining on me? For fuck's sake. This is not a good way to record a book. Yeah, a little umbrella action you might be able to hear the gentle pitter-patter see it's just been so rainy and so shitty lately, I haven't gotten any recording done and it's driving me nuts the middle of west coast winter is not the right time to be doing this So I just want to get some fucking, I want to get some minutes down man okay, new guests are a gentle pitter-patter it's like It's like gentle popcorn popping. We're leaving the Boston QZ, and this is the first section of the game where I notice that if you shine your flashlight in another character's eyes, they'll squint and put up a hand to block the light. I love little details like that. Yeah, I think I can hear also a distant construction beep. Let's just try to get to the point when uh, we find out that Ellie is infected. That'll do for today. My soaking feet getting rained on. Man, it is real pretty out here today though. I love when the water is really high. My hometown floods every year and it just, it looks so beautiful. It's just great. And I love seeing, like when you can't see rain, you can only see the results of rain. Like I can see all the little circles appearing on the water but I can't see the raindrops themselves. All right, (coughs) speaking of rain, Another detail of the outskirts of Boston is that the rain falls in sheets across the broken pavement, and Tess and Ellie both shield themselves from it. Man, I fucking love this game. The details are so insanely good. Most game characters seem like scarecrows, just rough approximations of human beings. Characters in The Last of Us are more like wax sculptures. At first glance, they really do seem a lot like the real thing. Technological realism. The first time I noticed water affecting a character's pants, very specific, was in the first Uncharted. Drake's pants would get wet up to the point where they'd been submerged, and then would slowly dry out. Surely I've mentioned this before, anyway. I didn't love using the 6-axis to throw grenades, but I loved those pants. Games with a simplified aesthetic are also beautiful, but there's something uniquely gripping about games that push the boundaries of graphical technology. Part of what makes cutting-edge games so exciting is how they can make larger technological progress seem immediately tangible. The first time I played King's Quest VI or Mario 64, those moments stuck with me. My parents' generation seems to see video games as toys, just something to play with. The rob-the-robot approach. But for my generation, video games have a greater significance. It's hard to comprehend the state of cancer research, or global famine, or a million other world-spanning issues. But the increasing complexity of video games can act as a sort of report. This may sound weird to say, but I've always thought of video game technology as a signifier of what the human race at large is accomplishing. Every new boundary broken in a video game means that same boundary has also been broken in other fields. Video games move these enormous concepts out of the abstract and into a format that we can parse and understand in a very personal, visceral way. I may be overstating this concept, but I think this may be one reason why people in my age group have taken such comfort from video games throughout our lives. As long as video games are improving, then technology is advancing. We may have only been looking at SuperNest screenshots in a magazine, but in the back of our minds, it meant something deeper. We could see that humankind was moving forward. My first video game system was a Pong clone from Radio Shack, and now I can play games with people all over the world on a little device in my pocket. The advancements within my lifetime have been astounding. If our technology can advance at that rate, then we can overcome our problems. As crazy as the world is, things could ultimately be all right. Whenever we saw the latest screenshots of the newest game, deep down, I think that sense of security is what we were really feeling. On the other hand, this could be a sign of my terminal shallowness. I can read articles and see headlines about technological progress, and it doesn't fully sink in. But when I see that wetness on Nathan Drake's pant legs, suddenly... In a flash, I feel like I understand. I have an awareness of the state of our progress. Moral relativism. I love how each group in The Last of Us has a valid point of view. It feels a little weird to uh, jump from one abstract concept to the next without rambling about it in between. But I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna try to cut my ramblings down a little. I'm just gonna. Try to let this book stand on its own a little more and just see how that goes. Moral relativism. I love how each group in The Last of Us has a valid point of view. There isn't a lot of time spent examining the military in Boston, but in the American Dreams prequel comic, Ellie talks to the army guy who runs her military school. Do you know what stands between the hordes of infected and all the stragglers living in this city? The military guy asks. Ellie says, a giant concrete wall? Me, says military guy, and every other soldier who puts his life on the line for you people. We keep the order that saves lives. Every goddamn human being in the world would be infected if it wasn't for us. That's not strictly true, since we do see other groups of survivors out in the world. But maybe those people are just lucky that a wave of spores hasn't shown up to wash over them. Maybe a hyper-controlled, regimented system is the best way to reliably keep people safe. Maybe quarantine zones really are the safest hope. The game's not called The Last of Us for nothing. Humankind is right on the edge. The Cordyceps has effectively won. Whatever people are still clinging to the Earth are nearing statistical insignificance. They've had 20 years to right the ship, and things don't seem to be getting any better. There are a lot of assholes in The Last of Us, but I like how there are no obvious straw men. Every cannibal community or group of hunters has a reason for their actions. There are no good guys and no bad guys. A lot of stories strive for that kind of balance, but the level to which The Last of Us achieves it is pretty fucking remarkable. Ellie's Infection There's always a slight cut to black before a cutscene starts. And I'm not sure what that's all about. It might be a technical necessity or it might be a small indicator that the player is no longer in control. Either way it's timed really well and I've come to like how it feels. Some soldiers get the drop on our trio and while being scanned Ellie stabs the soldier in the leg and says sorry. Mighty Canadian of her. Maybe her dad was Canadian. We're very polite stabbers. Tess and Joel are less polite as they kill all the soldiers. They see that Ellie's infection status is positive, but her wound is closed up, and she's not a monster. So the cat's out of the bag. Ellie is immune. The gang considers this heavy news as rain droplets fall onto the screen. Speaking of, I think the rain has mostly stopped for me. I'm not sure where the tradition of water droplets sticking to the screen began. Wave Race 64, maybe? There was a lot of water in that game. Some of it might have splashed up against the screen at some point. Now we're evading soldiers in the rain. As I get shot, I notice that Joel can absorb a fair number of bullets, even on survivor difficulty. Metaphor bullets. Getting shot in a video game is weird because most people don't keep running around after being shot. I was thinking about this while playing Spec Ops The Line. Don't play that game on hard, by the way. Mechanically, it's a bit of a goddamn mess. Yeah, just to jump in there real quick, because I had that whole big rant about how I uh, think games are better on hard. I played Spec Ops right as I had come to that conclusion, and, uh, man, really frustrating. It's really clear that Spec Ops, just the way... Stuff like uh, contextual button presses, you know, like if a button could do this, and could do that, depending on the circumstance, and when you're in a life and death situation, you only want it to do the thing that will keep you alive, but sometimes it does the other thing, just dumb shit like that. It's very clear that uh, mechanically, Spec Ops is not sound. (laughs) That's a good example of where playing on hard is just misery, and there's no reason. It's not going to make the experience better. So, mechanically, it's a bit of a goddamn mess, but its storyline is realistic enough that I found myself looking for an explanation as to how I was surviving getting shot all the time. Spec Ops has a regenerating health system, and the explanation I came up with is that when the character takes a bullet, it's more of a metaphor. He's in a dangerous position, and an enemy is going to have a beat on him at any second, so that bullet hitting him isn't actually real. It's an exciting video game representation of danger. It's a representation of a bullet whizzing past his ear, or the hair on his arm standing up. It's like Spidey Sense. The last bullet to hit the player, that's the only bullet that really hits him. This works for The Last of Us as well. Any bullets that hit Joel are grazes at most. That's why a bandage soaked in alcohol can work as a healing item. It's only the top layer of skin that's been damaged. The metaphor breaks down when Joel takes a slug to the chest and goes tumbling backwards. But in those cases, I just assume that he's carrying a lot of Bibles and lighters and that those helped absorb the blow. Oh man, the, uh, the water's actually rising still. So this little piece of beach that I'm on is basically gone. Gotta get out of here for today. I did it though, I recorded some audio. Okay, we'll get back. We'll get back to the book. Coming up immediately. Evading soldiers. Soldiers are shining their flashlights into the trenches and sneaking past them is a bit of a bitch. It must be tough to design an environment that looks natural but also leads players where they need to go. The markers of yellow caution tape are a nice touch It's plausible that they'd been left by previous insurgents. It's taken a few restarts, but it's interesting that I've made it this far into the game without taking any damage. On my first playthrough, The Last of Us was cruelly hard. Seems like a hallmark of good game design is when a player's performance can be improved in this way. Your fifth run through Dark Souls will barely resemble the first run. Whereas you could spend the rest of your life playing Mortal Kombat on the Game Boy and it's still going to be a weird bullshit clusterfuck. I read that during this outdoor segment, Tess will sometimes give Joel some bullets. That'd be cool if she did that. The enemies mostly ignore your companions, but not entirely. A soldier just took a few shots at Tess. I guess I already knew that since companions sometimes need to be rescued from an infected. So maybe it's only during stealth that your companions are invisible. It's weird that the companions don't hang back further. They're always near Joel, which leads to them interacting oddly with enemies a lot more often. If they were behind Joel, it'd be less likely that we'd see whatever weird things they get up to. No need to thank me. It must be frustrating to read things like that if you're a game developer. Oh, thanks, Canadian jerk. We never thought of that. Incidental dialogue. As I believe I've already mentioned, because there's a fair amount of inadvertent repetition in this book, I'm usually very sensitive to repetitive dialogue in video games. There can't be enough different dialogue for me. I think it's a low-level mix of OCD and misophonia, Repetitive sounds eventually pass beyond annoyance and make me feel angry. Don't you love it when people self-diagnose, by the way? So charming. Even games with boatloads of dialogue eventually come to a point where I've heard it all. I wish games had a slider to allow you to reduce the frequency of incidental dialogue. Dialogue is one of the fastest ways for a game world to fall apart for me. Nowadays, every game is awash in a sea of dialogue. I didn't really remember how dialogue-free games used to be until I watched my friend Craig play Driver San Francisco. Driver San Francisco is a weird game. You can teleport spontaneously from car to car, which in the olden days would have gone entirely unexplained. It would have been the way that the game worked, and that'd be it in driver sf they explain that you've fallen into a coma which has resulted in you receiving fantastic powers or maybe it's all a coma dream one of those whatever who fucking who cares the point is that once that pandora's box of including a plot has been opened they won't stop running with it and the nattering dialogue becomes incessant craig was having trouble with one of the missions. And with each retry, the characters kept rattling off the same lines of shitty dialogue. So Craig went into the options, and he turned the dialogue volume all the way down. The change in tone was palpable. It was like taking a long drink from a cool glass of water. Instead of Driver San Francisco being some weird Twilight Zone driving game, it became just a driving game, and it became immediately more fun. Back in the day... Driver would have been a regular, dialogue-free game, and that would have been fine. Watching Craig play, I remembered how I used to love driving games, and how I can still love them now, once they shut the fuck up. Storylines and dialogue are not adding to these experiences. They are actually ruining games that I used to enjoy. Another example that springs to mind is the original Dead Space. I love that game. I'd go so far as to say that I respect it. The way that the character information is integrated into the suit is genius. And the environment is so creepy and well-designed. I beat that game on hard with only the plasma cutter, and it was a terrifying, awesome time. But the storyline of Dead Space, man, it beats me. Some kind of monolith, some religious cultists. I was trying to keep track of it. I liked that game so much that I really wanted to give a shit about the story. But every time I found a text log, my eyes would glaze over. Whenever someone started talking to me, my mind would just wander. I couldn't make myself give even the littlest, tiniest fuck. So I stopped torturing myself, and I just turned off the dialogue. Turns out, Dead Space was still a great game. Turns out... Being trapped on a ship filled with deadly monsters is a pretty gripping story. With the dialogue turned on, Dead Space was an alright game, but with dialogue turned off, it was A+. A less charitable example is the 2013 Tomb Raider. I liked Uncharted a ton, so I was excited to have someone else put out something similar. I thought that even a B-grade version of Uncharted would be cool, but I didn't realize what fresh hell I was asking for. A hallmark of Uncharted is that its dialogue and storyline isn't relegated to cutscenes. It's intertwined throughout. 2013's Tomb Raider uses the same technique. And fella, that game's writing is not for me. Tomb Raider is a great example of why good for a video game should not be in anyone's vernacular. That writing is only good for an alternate reality. Where no one had ever written a story previously and even then i think people would have found it a little clunky because tomb raider uses uncharted's continuous narrative technique its wacky writing and inept delivery are inescapable it's a non-stop barrage of garbage and i found myself clutching to whatever coping mechanisms i could devise at first i tried pretending that lara was drunk But after a while, even inebriation could not explain her behavior. So I started to imagine that she had suffered brain damage and was tragically lost in the woods, verbalizing without any physical ability to stop. That rationalization actually worked too well, to the point where it started creeping me out. So I decided to turn off the dialogue, but there was only a single slider for both dialogue and sound effects. So fuck it, I muted the whole thing and I just put on the heavy metal soundtrack instead. As a pure game, Tomb Raider 2013 does not work as well as Dead Space. It was okay. The last words that appear on screen are, a survivor is born, so I guess that's pretty funny. I definitely laughed, so I'll give it points for that, but still infinitely improved by removing the character dialogue. The point I'm getting to is that when Ellie says, Jesus Joel, after Joel crushes someone's windpipe, it doesn't wear on me. It seems like something that should bother me because it happens pretty frequently, but it always seems to fit. Again, Naughty Dog takes what I would normally think of as a bad design decision and they somehow pull it off. Maybe it's because the grimness of Joel's actions really does call for a reaction. Or maybe it's because the responses are so well delivered by the actors. Maybe Naughty Dog is just magical. (laughs) I don't know. I honestly feel like that company is in a class of its own. I would say that The Last of Us is the Citizen Kane of gaming. But I won't because Citizen Kane sucks. I'm calling you out, Wells. What's that? He's dead? Here's another uh, awkward attempt at a joke by me. What's that? He's dead? Oh, well, good. I don't mean it like that. I just mean, look, let's just go on to the next segment. Ugh. <laughs> Maybe next time I write a book, I will, before release, try reading it out loud. You know, because uh, it is funny, these like clunky jokes. As I'm writing, I'm like, yeah, whatever, that'll do. That's a little funny. And then you say it out loud, and you're like, that's not funny at all. <laughs> that fucking sucks. <laughs> Choke theory. Here's something I learned while sneaking through these soldiers. During my stealth kills, I'd been pressing the square button continuously in order to really cinch in that choke. I stopped once the rumble of the controller told me that the guy was out, but not a moment before. I just now realized that if you only press square one time, Joel just keeps choking. Enemies can't break free from a choke. So, good to know. I guess I could have saved myself a lot of square pushing, but that's in the past. All that matters is the future, and the future is going to contain some elegant goddamn choking. Hide and seek, with soldiers. My new choking discovery takes a bit of getting used to. At first it seems weird not to keep pounding the square button while I'm choking someone out, but I get comfortable with it pretty quickly. And then it seems almost leisurely. I can let Joel just choke people on his own while I check on my finances or whatnot. You can't run and slide into cover in this game, but I guess that would just tear the shit out of Joel's pants. His old knees definitely don't need that shit, nor his old pants. We make it to safety, and Tess hasn't given me any bullets. I assume that's because we made it through without starting any firefights. If I keep getting through this game unscathed, I guess Ellie won't give me any health packs either. But I am anticipating some fights with the infected where taking no damage will not be possible. When fighting against humans, it's only a matter of time before things eventually go my way. But some of the shit in the Pittsburgh sewers, I don't know what I'm gonna do there. The school outside of Bill's won't be a treat either. Capital on the Horizon. It's pretty unusual how clearly The Last of Us delineates its combat sections. You're in a safe part, or you're in a fighty part. They've managed to make a horror-style pseudo-zombie game that has almost no jump scares. Joel seems to basically believe Ellie's story of being immune, and doesn't seem to doubt that the Fireflies have their own doctors, but he's still utterly dismissive of the idea of a cure. Joel could not believe in the fireflies less. It's surprising how little of Joel's anti-firefly attitude I picked up on on my first playthrough. I'm not saying I should have seen the ending coming, but on reflection, it's really not surprising. Tess wanting to continue on is the only reason Joel is still a part of this story at all. We see the Capitol building in the distance and there's another press L3 to focus the camera moment Maybe it was some dictum passed down, the control should never be taken from the player. First-person games take that idea to an extreme, letting you jump all around while someone's trying to talk to you. But I don't think it's that bad to break those rules occasionally. It makes more sense that Joel would look at the Capitol building rather than not look at it. So what I'm trying to say is, just do what you gotta do, game. You don't need my permission to show me something. We crawl into the side of an old, broken office building. Tess says, "After this, <laughs> I shouldn't do a Tess impression. I don't have one. Let's just do a British voice." Tess says, "After this, we can lie low for a while." Ah, oh, poor Tess. I remember being sure she was going to die after she said that. One day left until retirement, Tess. One day. Backstories. During alternate playthroughs, I like to come up with backstories for characters. Joel has a pistol in his back pocket, the one that I had to pick up earlier. If I can help it, that'll be his only weapon, and he'll only use it when there's literally no other option. So what's the story there? Why is Joel so hesitant to use weapons? His daughter was killed by a gun, so that might have caused him to swear them off? You couldn't really argue with him about that. However, that also means that during the previous 20 years, while being a bandit with Tommy and a smuggler with Tess, Joel also avoided guns. So it's been a long, violent 20 years of punching people to death and choking fools out, all the while carrying a pistol in his back pocket that he never, ever uses. That's actually pretty goddamn creepy. (laughs) Alright, I guess we can call that a close here. The first two uh, sections of this audiobook that I put out are really, really long, like two hours each. And I realized all these other ones I've got laid out are also that long, but uh, that's really long. Why not make these a bit shorter and then I can put them out a little more often. Let's go for more, you know, an hour type shit. So that's plenty. Uh, Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying this audiobook presentation. Between chapters, I've been putting out other stuff, just weird little random video game reviews and shit. Just as a little experiment, something to fuck around with. I hope you enjoy those, but if you don't, feel free to skip them. So uh, once again, you can get this book for free at keithcourage.com. Next chapter, we'll uh, head to the Capitol Building, where nothing bad is going to (laughs) happen. Everything's going to be just fine. So I'll see you then and thank you for listening.